Just a reminder, our podcast deals with crimes that are often violent and graphic in nature, so listener discretion is advised. So when in doubt, leave the kids out. Now, please let us take you back in time. All right, so old-time crime gal listeners and friends, this is Melissa here with Shannon. And for the first time ever, we are recording the podcast from our car. Yes. In a parking lot. Yes. An hour away from home. Old-time crime gals on the go. It's different, um, but we, we're working with what yeah, we're working with. We are. We have to do some things so, sometimes as moms. Call this dedication. That's we right. We are so dedicated, we're still recording in a parking lot. And hopefully you're dedicated enough to continue listening. Yes. And so, um, yeah. It'll ding again. Probably. It'll ding. So there'll be some phone dings. There might be some noise. There might be some... Somebody might come up and say... Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. We might try to get carjacked. Who knows? No, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully this is a safe parking lot. Yeah. But All anyway. Right, so we're, what are we talking about tonight, Miss so Melissa? I actually have a story of... I love a good heist. I love a good robbery. Story. Have I mean, you ever watched never... that movie Ocean's 12 or 11? What, whichever the first one well, was. Well, they did 11, 12, then they remade it with women or something. Anyway, um, I've never seen those, to be to be honest. The first one was really good. It um, was with Brad Pitt and George Clooney, yeah, I think. Yeah, and that's exactly why I did not watch it. Oh. Sorry, no Brad Pitt fans. I oh, okay. I just don't think he can act very well. Oh. We might have lost some listeners think... for that, but that's just my personal opinion. Yeah. I think he skirts a lot on his, I'm using quotations, good looks, but anyway. So, the only reason I was thinking is because it was a cool little heist scenario. So, yeah, that was the I, thing about um, that. Well, this one, the story that we're talking about today actually does have a movie. But they changed some stuff around. Um, that came out in 2019. Um, uh, as usual, the movies always change yeah, stuff Yeah, and, and there so. it's a little bit different. Oh, gosh, that's going to be a problem. I hope not. We're trying to work <laughs> off of mobile devices. So, yeah, what this is old school today. I had the, um, I had... Actually typed it out and got everything ready. And, of course, we're in a dark parking lot because we're recording later than usual. I can't see. Uh, there was a printer issue and stuff. This so will work. Just remember to touch the screen. Yeah, I'll just touch the screen. <laughs> we're doing old school today. Yes, and y'all are patient people. Bless. So, it's a heist. So, it's a heist. Um, we're going back to the 1970s. Ooh. And good, good years. Yes, and we're going to talk about a bank burglary. Let me rephrase that because... I want to talk about the difference between a robbery and a burglary. Educate so, me. So, yes, there's a distinction. Um, so, robbery is often violent, and it involves creating fear from someone to get what you want, often using okay. guns, and, you know, it doesn't take any real skill. Anybody can rob somebody. Okay. Um, most offenders, you know, it gets messy, and sometimes they're, you know, stuff happens, people die, but they're usually almost caught soon after because okay. it's, it's just not as... Artful as robbery. Got it. Okay. Or as the um, burglary, excuse me. Burglary. So, okay. I used to work at a bank. And I that was one of my worst fears was that we were going to come in and get robbed. Because we, we actually had to prepare for them. We had to do scenarios. We had to do different things. And, like, think of all the ways something could happen. And what we were supposed to do when it happened. And then knowing that in the moment, you know, you act differently. It was just a scary thing. And where you worked, it was a high po- possibility. I worked <laughs> in the only bank in town who had the bulletproof glass, and it was a very high possibility. <laughs> um, but thankfully, that did not happen. That bank is closed now. Um, it was actually attached to a shady gas station. Oh, my and, word. Yes. And I, d- tell I didn't know. Well, I know, but I didn't know it was attached so to a gas station. I can't station. tell you how many times someone waited in the teller line for like 
10 minutes and got to my, my line and asked for $10 on pump four. And I wanted to be like, this is not the gas station. Are you serious? I kid you not. Oh, wow. You know where we live. Yes. I kid you not. Um, crazy times. Okay. So, <laughs> and there was a, ba- a bank of my branch that did get robbed. I mean, okay. like AK-47 guys make everybody lay on the floor <gasps> on sunset. Oh, my word. That's yes. terrible. Years, years before I started to work at the bank. Yeah. So, that was one of my worst fears as a, as a bank teller. But it scary. never happened. And now I don't do that anymore. But, um, so burglary, on the other hand. Now we just talk about it. Yeah. Requires skill. You know, to make entry into a locked building, passing security protocols, and infiltrating main vaults, you know, using explosives, and without anyone here in the bank, and then taking your time to go through all the contents, you know, to get what you can take out, and then get in and out undetected, and that just takes much more skill. Gotcha. And so... And planning. Takes a lot of planning. So it requires very certain skill sets and planning. You have to have the right team of coworkers that just won't turn on you on an instant and you know, get you all True. caught up. So you have to have people you trust to work with you. And then, you know, when it's done with no weapons and no one gets physically hurt, it's just a good story. Yeah. So this is the 1972 breach of United California Bank. So now, do you have a group of guys that pulled this off? Because, of course, one person can't do all of that. No. Um, so they are actually from Youngstown, Ohio. Oh, okay. So you've got people from Ohio, which um, some articles I read called it like the Crime Town USA. Apparently, this was a very um, organized crime heavy in, horrible, I, in, in Ohio. Ohio. Yeah, wow, Youngstown, okay. Ohio. Um, of course, this group of people were no strangers to doing this type of gig. You know, they've been doing it for years, so they were well versed in what they needed to get done, and you know, what in order and all that stuff. So the mastermind behind it all. So we're going to talk about his name is Emil um, Decinio. He'd been burglarizing banks since his high school days. Wow! So like he's career criminal. Yes. So he's the one who put together this crew, which included some of his family members and other ones who had some of those specific skill sets that we'll talk about that were needed for the job. So this bank it sits outside of L.A. in Laguna Niguel, California. So, um, you all right? Yep. Okay. That's nice. <laughs> gotta do what we and gotta aside do. from uh, Ohio, I can't even say it, Ohio, Ohio, to California, I mean, you had to prepare. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's a whole different city, state, everything. So, the, the motivation behind this particular bank is a little odd. So, several articles said they were supposedly trying to steal, like, slush money. That was hidden there by the corrupt president of the United States at the time, which was Nixon. So, they said that the money was extorted from dairy farmers in an effort to drive up the price of milk. Okay. Now, I don't have time to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I didn't look at, one. like, what history was going on and what the time was. And guess what? I'm not even going to ask you about it. But I, it's no <laughs> surprise to me that that's plausible, that that scenario, you Nothing know. Nothing surprises me. Exactly, because, hello, look at our current state of affairs. Anyway. Um, so, you know, how many of us just corruption in the workplace or, you know, crooked right. anybody? I yeah. mean, it, it's everywhere. And on a larger scale, if you in charge of an entire country, I can only imagine. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Correct. <laughs> Crazy times. Yes. I lost my place. You were talking about how yeah. the farmers or the dairy farmers. Yeah. Were well, yeah. But so I didn't jump down that rabbit hole. No. But, yeah. Don't do but that. But you can always bet that there's a lot going on that we don't know about. Yes. Just saying. 
And I wrote my notes moving on. But there was obviously some money in there, though, that they were trying to get. Well, yeah, whether so it was they're going into that or not. a bank. Okay. So as far as, you know, it went down. So March 24th, so the crew hits the building. Okay. So they use a ladder to access an area on the roof. They cut a hole. They drop down. This was at night, I'm this sure. This was at night, yes. So they're above the vault. So then they use explosives to blow out a hole in the ceiling. Okay. And then, of course, they've got rebar to deal with because they can't drop down because the rebar's in place. So they had to have a torch or something to cut the rebar so they can lower themselves down and then gain access to all the security deposit boxes that were lining the walls. So it was a Friday evening. And so the crime did not get discovered until Monday morning on March 27th when the bank employees tried to open the bank. Gotcha. And start their work day. So they had the entire weekend. So everything seemed normal on that Monday. You know, no one had any idea what went over the, you know, over the weekend. The bank manager goes to open the safe to get things ready to open. But there's a problem. He couldn't get it open. Look. He tried several times, you know, made sure he had the right combination. Just the door wouldn't budge. Like, you could hear the clicks of the tumblers going into place when you turn on the combination lock. But then the handle just wouldn't turn. So it's like stuff was in front of it or, or the handle well, wouldn't turn. the handle okay. wouldn't turn. So they could hear it click, but they just couldn't couldn't get the bar to turn. Okay. So and I'm doing a lot of hand gestures because that's okay. Too. Um, so he couldn't get the bar to turn. And so he had to call someone from the vault company. So 20 minutes later, a technician from the company comes in and he's checking the locks and he's doing his thing and he can't figure out what's wrong. Like he can't even get in there. And so, I mean, he was there for hours. Oh, my goodness. So now, like, people are waiting for the bank to open. I was going to say, so they can't get their money. So the bank can't open because you can't load the teals or anything. Until you go into the vault? Mm -hmm. Okay. So going above and beyond what was probably listed in his job description, he climbs into the rafters above the ceiling. Okay. To make his way above the vault just just to see what he can see. Just have a look-see. And by chance, he finds a big hole in the roof of the vault. Okay. And so then looking down, he can see into the vault. And there's this gaping rectangle hole in the floor that just happens to be right above where they're trying to get in. So, of course, they immediately call the FBI. So, FBI agents are immediately dispatched to the bank, and they see what they can figure out. So, the technician has is dropped down, and then he spots exactly why the door couldn't get open. There's just a screwdriver sticking in the gear shift. Okay. So, like, wasn't complicated. He just had to snatch the screwdriver out. Got it. So, he snatches the screwdriver out, and immediately the, but they it, turn it, it over. But it bought more time for but the investigation. Bought, exactly. Bought so. them more time. So, they couldn't figure out why. Because it took them, like, half a day to figure out why the door wouldn't open. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they open it up, and then you can see what's going on inside. So, inside, there was a pile of rubble that was about six feet high. And it spread out. It has, like, rock, concrete, dust, debris from where they blew from the, the ceiling. But also what looks like soil and pieces of burlap. Huh. Which were odd. Okay. But then you got a safety deposit box pulled out of the slots everywhere, dumped upside down, empty, like, just stuff all over the floor. Just an absolute mess. So it's an active crime scene. So they couldn't just, like, barge in and see what was going on. Because you yeah. never know if, like, a piece of hair was left behind or fingerprints or right. or anything. So they had to kind of pause everything and then get crime texts in. And they had to meticulously go through everything. And this was the 70s. So they this was the 70s. Yet, so it's know? not like they could, you know, scan fast track stuff. stuff. Right, right. Um, so they probably took some blurry, you know, grainy photographs, and which I've seen. And you really can't tell what's going on. <laughs> and um, go through everything. So, it was going to take a while. But also, it was going to take a while because they had a problem. They didn't really know what was missing because they're safety deposit boxes. And And you don't have to tell the bank what you put inside your safety deposit box. Okay. And that was always the 
it felt shady to me when someone wouldn't want to go in their box because the way our bank did it was I had a key that I had to find. They had the customer had a key. We had to put our keys in together, right. turn a lock to pull a door so they could get their box. Okay. And then they're walked to a private area where they can access their box. Oh wow. So we weren't allowed to see what they put in their box. Which is kind of scary too if they bring yes, in a because, gun or something like passports, that. Passports, guns, illegal documents, um, stolen currency, yeah. snakes. Yes, <gasps> you heard me right. It snakes? was not in our facility, but there was a person who put a snake in a safety deposit box and visited it weekly to make sure it was alive and it was fed. How did they get found out? I'm not sure. Okay. It's just one of those like <laughs> stories you get say. told when you become a television. I mean, because that, that's so some things you see on TV are true. So that's the only thing I know about safety deposit boxes is what I've seen on TV and movies. But, but it, just felt, it just felt weird having to like. Being like, here's your mystery box, and like, go away, and then you get called, and like, let's put it back in the wall. Like, and you, you never don't know, know what what's it going is. Inside. Yeah, I don't like that either. I think that's but, I mean, sketchy. But then, if you need one, I mean, it's important to have if you put like wills and your like important documents that you need kept safely in case your house burns down. I mean, I get that. I understand right. what they're there for, but at the same time, a you snake. can put a lot of stuff that you don't want and yeah. might not know in your snake, or, you know. Yeah. So the whole ordeal always felt shady to me. <laughs> is it documented who has safety deposit boxes? Like if a crime was committed, oh yeah, yeah. So a gun yeah. And... So what they what they did was they had to call the customers and like, hey, you know, box number such and such was breached. Things might be missing. We were broken into. Can you tell me what was in your box? Like okay. you tell me what's missing so that we can report it. And then if you don't want to tell, then oh well, that's on you, right? Yeah. I mean, then you can't. We won't find it if we find the rest of the stuff, yeah. or you can't claim it on your insurance if yeah. it's jewels or something that's insured. But then again, if it's, it's illegal and shady, yeah. they probably won't do it anyway. So it's, it's kind of kind of crazy. But at any point, sifting through all that mess and evidence was going to take time, especially to find out exactly what was missing. Right. So they went outside to check the perimeter, and so they discovered why the audible part of the alarm didn't go off. So there's this box that they open up, and it inside looks like um old school school bell like a oh, big okay. bell that yeah. would like make noise they had sprayed um liquid styrofoam ah, have you ever seen that stuff we use it in our house sometimes like my dad used to use it for um during halloween he would build a scarecrow yeah but he would spray the pants he would fill it up with foam so you could like sit the yeah. scarecrow up but anyway so it's this liquid that you spray like, out, and then it like expands. Yeah. It sprays styrofoam or whatever yeah. they call it. But they had sprayed it in and around the bell, and it filled up the box so that even if it was tripped, that the the, the the whatever you call it, the middle part of the bell uh -huh. couldn't move, so it couldn't I make know. noise. That makes sense. We've used that for decorations at our church for vacation Bible school before. Yeah, I mean it's some it's, it's some pretty cool stuff. It is probably not that cheap. I don't know. Probably about the end though. Of course, they're robbing a bank. They don't care how much it costs. <laughs> but that so, is the one cool way to keep it from ringing. So if you, you know, tip, if you have an alarm, you don't need to go off, you can spray styrofoam. Of course, I don't know with all of the I don't think anyone technology. used that stuff anymore. This is back in the 70s. So, and then they found the ladder. So they, on the roof, you know, so that leads them up to the roof. You know, of course, they obviously dropped in. It's a roof job. So on the roof, they find tape on an outlet, you know, so they access the power. So that's how they got their tools. Okay. Um, so they were using the bank's electricity. So then, of course, they brushed that. There's no fingerprints on the tape. There's no fingerprints on the outlet. Um, you know, so they obviously assume they have gloves. I think most basic crime 101 is if you're going to do something, wear gloves. Yes. I think everyone knows that now. Um, 
And then get rid of the gloves because you can get prints up inside <laughs> the gloves. Now you can. Back in the seventies, I don't think they probably could have. Yeah, or I didn't. They think didn't about have trying. like vacuum sealed chambers and like fancy yeah. tricks up their sleeve. Um, but a box was open, so this is the silent alarm system. So then the uh, they open the box. The two wires that were needed to transmit the signal to the alarm company were cut and soldered together. So obviously this was someone who knew exactly what they were doing. They were efficient and they're just clearly professionals. Yes. Because how of the eight or 12 wires would you know to cut the right two and not set the alarm off? Right. I mean, they had to know what they were doing. True. So then once they did that, they had to get through 16 inches of reinforced concrete. So they drilled holes and put dynamite in with blasting caps. But then they needed to control the blast so it wouldn't be, one, too loud, and two, it wouldn't hurt them because they're blowing up a hole like they're standing next to this hole. So then they put soil down with the burlap bags. Oh, okay. So that directed the blast down into that six feet of rubble that was in the room. Got it. And so once they blasted, then they had the rebar that they had to torch. They had a torch that they cut the rebar, and then that's how they got into the the vault. Got it. That explained the dirt and... Burlap. Burlap, yes. So, overall, 458 safe deposit boxes were gone through. And $50,000 cash unaccounted for that they knew of. Okay. Um, so, they spent a lot of time going through everything. So, they probably came in and out Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, yeah. Sunday night. I mean, yeah. they had three whole days to get in and get out. And so, amazingly... They could have left it in less of a mess. They had enough time to make I know, sure. right? They could have put everything back together, Yes. Right? Wouldn't it be weird if they came in and there was a hole in the ceiling, but, like, all the boxes were back? Yeah, that would have been... That would have been kind of freaky. Yeah. Then it would have took me longer to figure it out which boxes were in. But, I, I mean... I guess OCD wasn't a disorder back then. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have an OCD criminal with them. That's funny. But, amazingly, so no fingerprints left behind. No evidence whatsoever. They didn't... Not, not even a piece of hair... Nothing. Wow. Um, no sweat drops. No wow. no blood. No one got cut. I mean so they covered themselves. They good. covered their tracks. So then they sifted through and pieced out all the items they left behind. They started pulling the customers in one by one, asking them what they were missing out their thing, and then once they get their list together they had like rare gold coins, jewelry, bonds, cash. So the value of the missing items bumped up to be an estimated $8 million. Oh, wow. So this just became the biggest bank robbery in U.S. history. Wow. That was a lot. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. That was a lot. we're going to start the investigation. Okay. All right. So on to the investigation. So where do you start when you have... No DNA, nothing. nothing. Yeah, nothing. It's the 70s. You have you don't have surveillance cameras to see who walked in the bank. Of course, they came in the roof. You don't have, you know, any of this stuff. So they don't have anything. So then they call the a larger FBI. So this is like the local FBI field office. Okay. And they call like the state FBI. Okay. So then they start to bring in. They bring in 120 agents. Oh, wow. And they assign them to this case. And so, L.A. didn't have crimes like this. Like, this just doesn't happen. This is a very odd bank burglary. Well, this was definitely in the 70s. It was obviously a professional, yeah. (laughs) Obviously a professional job. I mean, they've done this before. So, they decide to send out, like, a bulletin. Like, an all-points bulletin to their offices nationwide. Okay. Like, hey, this is what we had. Do you guys have anything in your area that has just possibly been like this? You know, they're just trying to see if any case could be connected. You know, they thought that maybe that was a long shot, but, you know, they figured that these guys weren't from town because they didn't have anything like that. Nothing had ever happened like that from here. 
So if they've done it before, they've had to do it somewhere else. Right. So it just makes sense to say, hey, by the way, anybody got something like this going on? And it just so happens that the field office in Ohio calls them up right away. Well, that's very quick. They had similar break-ins in banks, 13 of them to be exact. Oh, wow. Same similarities. MO, roof job, foam around the um, alarm system, soldered yeah. wired together, like exact same thing. Carbon copy. And it's 13 of them, so you know they've got to be living there, possibly. So the Youngstown, like I said, was a crime maker. So there's a lot of ties to organized crime, like the mafia had ties there. Apparently it was this big old bad place to be. So their office had identified 100 possible bank robbing suspects oh wow okay and they collected intel on every single one of them gotcha so they took their list of 100 and sent it to la so they're like here's what we got here's anybody that it could be that we think so like have fun going through that list (laughs) so now this is before databases and you can't just key in a name and cross-reference and they had stacks of papers and they had to go that they had to go through so what they were thinking was these people weren't from here. If they're from Ohio, they had to come to L.A. somehow. It just makes sense to fly. So they printed off all the passenger manifests from the airlines. Okay. Of anybody who bought a ticket who came into L.A. anywhere near this heist. So think of how, I mean, how much yeah. paper reports. Like, you remember the old, like, this, we're showing our age here. Like, my, my mom used to have to do reports for work. They would come off the printer and it'd be like the holes all down the sides and they're perforated. Yes. 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 Like that. Stacks of reports over and over again. Some of y'all, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. Be glad. (laughs) But um, now you can just key in the name. They're like, oh, such and such came in. There it is right there. That's right. And video pop up half the time. Yep. So they had to do this by hand. So all the late night Chinese food, tons of coffee. Sitting in the office, going over these these cigarette cars. smoking, cigarette smoking, <laughs> back in the all 70s. of it, bell bottoms, mustache, but it paid off. Long yeah, and the remakes they all had mustaches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it paid off. So in total, they found five men that were on the Ohio list that boarded a flight to L.A. nine days before the heist. So these men were Emil Decinio, Harry Barber, Charles Mulligan, Charles Brockles. Philip Christopher, and then, of course, all of these people have long rap sheets. Like, they are known for petty theft and burglary and all sorts of things, but had never really spent time in jail. Okay. But they had rap sheets. So, and then they found James Decenio flew in the day before the burglary. So, James and Emil were brothers. Okay. Um, so, Emil was a leader. So, he's the one who picked the team and planned everything. Charles Brockles is the one who's an explosive and electronics expert. Charles Mulligan is Amil's brother-in-law. Why did they think they would look at the flights and drive in? And Harry Barber is Emil's nephew. Okay. So you've got lots of family members in that. Yeah. You with me? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so all of them are well-connected to organized crime. So the only thing that the feds have is that this crew knows each other. Okay. They're from Ohio, and they flew to L.A. So it's really not a crime to travel. Right. Especially when you've got your brother, your nephew, your True. brother. I mean, they're just going they're on family vacation. members. Yeah. So it's all circumstantial. Right. But they had a gut feeling that this was their crew. Yes. But still, circumstantial. 
Even if they cornered them right now, all they can say was, I was on a family trip. Right. I wanted to visit L.A. Nothing wrong with that. So the FBI started interviewing people at the airport. So, like, they knew they flew in. So, the, obviously, they flew in. They came to the airport. So, they talked to everybody. Particularly, they wanted to talk to cab drivers and car rental places to see if they recognized this group. So, they took their, okay. their mug shots of all the five. And they went around. And, then like, it and took like days. The, the luggage. I wonder if they could compare luggage coming in and leaving. Depends on if they checked the bag or not. Yeah. Um, and then even if they used their right names, because, I mean, back then, security wasn't as tight, That's so you true. could just go buy a ticket and get on. But, That's true. But apparently, they matched their names to the, fl- the flight list. But it turns out, like, one, ca- one cab driver actually came forward, because he remembered taking a group of five guys. First of all, five five big guys, intimidating-looking dudes, in one cab. I guess yeah. it was a van, because it was an airport. Yeah, okay. probably a van. Gotcha. Never mind. For a minute, I was envisioning, like, the New York cab sedan. I could five guys <laughs> get into to those. But airports do have a lot of vans. But in the 70s, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't station know. I wasn't wagon. around. I wasn't around then. Oh, Maybe it was a station wagon. I was around. was not around. I still had some, some years before I I've had came, some seasoning. Came, came uh, on board. Not that I was that old. What year was it? 70 what? 72. Oh, I, wouldn't, I wasn't born. Oh, good. I told I, I, I wasn't was, around either. <laughs> I wasn't around. No, I wasn't either. Um. Yeah, I wasn't a thought yet. All right. So, but this guy remembered this group because, again, five huge, intimidating-looking guys, and they gave him a $100 tip. Yeah. And they looked mean. So, he was like, yeah, I, I gave him some. I took him to a house in Southgate community around the corner. So, they were like, okay. So, then they get to the cab company and pull the record so they can find out where this house was, and they decided to go pay a visit. Now, they knew that if they went to this house and they knocked on the door and it was one of the crew... There's a possibility that then they would know they were on to them, and then they could all just split. Because they can't just burst in and search the place because they had no right probable cause or no, I mean, no reason. They could say they were on a vacation, right, so it doesn't yeah. matter. So even though they knew that was a risk, they decided to go and knock on the door. So they knock on the door, and Ronald answers the door. Ronald Barber, who was the brother of Harry Barber. Okay. Of one of the crew members. Gotcha. And so, you know... Harry agrees to the interview, but he doesn't say anything. And, of course, there's no warrant. There's no probable cause. They can't search anything. They just had to go on what he said. And was this the brother Ronald or Harry? This was Ronald that answered the door. Okay, but then Harry agreed to the interview. No, no. Okay. Ronald agrees to the interview. Okay. Hold on. You said Harry. No, well, Ronald, the brother of Harry, agreed to the interview. Sorry. I skimmed my own report. I wanted to make sure I was right. So we got this on one. Harry's probably back in Ohio. Yeah, Ronald was the one who answered the door. So, he's the one who said that, like, he doesn't know what's going on. And he's like, the six men were never at his house. Like, these guys were never there. So, the feds, of course, had a feeling that he's probably lying. And that he knows more than what he's saying. But they can't do anything. So, they decide, like, okay. But it was a tiny house. And so, they can't imagine all six of these big dudes staying in this one house for over a week trying to plan this little bank heist. Uh So, they figured their home base had to be somewhere different. Which was smart. So then they decide to go to hotels and okay. take their mud shocks to hotels and see if they had stayed anywhere in the area. So at first they were checking all like the fancy fancy ones because they knew they were going to rob the bank and they maybe they thought they were feeling like a high roller. And then that was turning out to be nowhere. So then one agent finally is like, thinks like a criminal and like they kind of don't want to be seen. So let's right. go to the shady ones. Exactly. <laughs> that To me that makes more sense where you would start. But anyway. Exactly. You'd go to the fancier ones after they've robbed the bank. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, they have robbed the bank. It is after they've robbed the bank. But anyway, 
Um, they ended up finding um, a truck stop hotel, like really shady okay. spot, that um, one of the guys had stayed at. So the guy recognized um, Emil's picture, the ringleader. And then they recognized Charles Mulligan, so his brother-in-law. So those two stayed at this shady truck stop. Um, so they checked the registration that they filled out, and Mulligan put down his license plate number. Oh, my goodness. So now they have a license plate number. Okay. So then they run that, and it leads them to the house in Southgate. Okay, to the brother. To, to the barber house, yes. Okay. So now things are, like, piecing together. So now they're convinced that this is this crew. I mean, they flew in. You know, two of them stayed there. The registration pops up at that house. They're trying to figure out what in the world's going on. So they start going through the phone records. So they made a lot of calls to this Earl Dawson. So now we have another player. There's a lot of names to remember. Yes, it is. So Earl Dawson is a former Marine who has training in explosives. Okay. And Dawson is also from Youngstown, Ohio. Ding, ding, ding. So they're like, ah, let's go to Dawson's house and see what he knows. And so Dawson, of course, is like, I don't know what's going on. Like, I don't know. But then, so it takes a while to get him talking, but eventually he gives up some info. He's like, hey, like, Charles Mulligan, I grew up with him. Uh-huh. Okay? Okay. So, like, I know Emil, James, and Charles, because they're all related. So, he says, the day before the heist, Mulligan shows up on his door doorstep. Okay. With the whole gang. Like, he doesn't know the gang. He knows just those three. So Mulligan asked him for a favor. He's like, here's a hundred bucks. Can you just leave your house for a few hours? We need to have a meeting. Okay. So they needed to find a safe place to talk that wasn't tied to them. Right. So they buy this guy's house for a couple hours. And he like, doesn't. Go see yeah. a movie, hang out. And like, I need to talk to my friends. He's like, fine, whatever. So he says he doesn't know what they talked about. Right. He's like, I left my house. I let them come in and talk. And that's they not did a crime. Thing. It's so. not a crime. I mean, somebody give me a hundred dollars. I'll leave my house for a couple yeah. hours. If you want to sit and talk. Now, and clean up some while you're here. That's right. <laughs> um, so he had, you know, had no idea what they talked about. He just, he goes, but he's like, but there's one thing you should know. Mulligan left his car in the garage. And he's like, it's still there. And this was like weeks after the heist had happened. Oh, wow. So he never came back and got his car. So he must have driven in. So then they're like. have a car. Yeah. Okay. Somehow. Yeah. Um, so they're like, okay, wow, this is cool. So like, it's great. He's got his car. So just as they were about to leave, the phone rings. Dawson picks it up and it answers, and it just happened to be Charles Mulligan. Ooh, calling so about the, his car? Calling about his car. Ooh. Well, he, so the feds are there, so he, he's like, you know, trying to motion to him that it's Charles on the phone without letting Charles know that he's got the feds in the, in the room. So Charles is like, this is so funny, he's in the reenactment, like, he's hand motioning, like, it's Charles, it's Charles. And so the FBI guy's like, can I listen? Can I listen? And he's like, yeah. So... He agreed for him to listen in because you have to have, you know, consent or whatever. And so the agent goes to the other room and, like, picks up a phone and puts his hand over the receiver. This is old school. There's yes. no wiretapping. This is nothing. He's, like, in the room listening. Because you could pick it up in the other room and listen to conversations. Yeah, this is just eavesdropping. Straight up eavesdropping. And so Charles asked Dawson, like, has the FBI been around? And the agent was, like, it was hard not to laugh because, like, hello, he, I'm listening yeah. to the, the conversation. And so... He's like, no, no, they ain't been around, man. Like, and so he was um, <laughs> picking up on what the FBI wanted him to do was to get him talking or whatever. And he said, um, Charles had told him that he knows the FBI's been around asking questions about him and his friends. And he just wants to know, you know, they want to know what he's been up to. And he's starting to get a little worried. 
so he said just to let you know i'm heading back to la and i want to move my car so he was getting a little a little worried and so they try to like they tell him write paper to get him to meet like have a meeting with him outside the house and so um dawson tries to talk him into a meeting and they schedule a meeting at a local bar just in case it's a setup, because I mean he could be watching the house and see, you know, see the feds right. go in and then immediately call oh, asking for true. his car, and so they didn't know where he was, and so um, he sets up a meeting at this bar, and so they can't they go take a look at the car after that. So like, all right, let's see this car in the garage, but they can't search it because it's not Dawson's car. He can't give them permission to search it. But it's on his property, but yeah, he still can't but he, he search still, it. Okay. He still can't give him for, you know, permission to look inside. But they look in the windows. They can walk all the way around it. Okay. So as they walk around it and they look in the windows, they see a pair of gloves that match the same type of gloves that were at the crime scene. Okay. And then in the back seat, it's covered in concrete dust and um, looks like the bottom of the vault floor. So obviously... That's yeah. enough for probable cause. Okay. So now they're allowed to get the search warrant to dig deeper. So that while they're filing the paperwork for that, they also file an arrest warrant for Charles Mulligan because obviously he was involved. If he's got gloves in his car, the concrete dust stuff, plus he's I mean, already claimed shade. it. He's claimed the car. He's claimed so. his car. It's registered to him. So then they're like, okay. So now it becomes like old school stakeout. So they have this meeting at this bar. So they go hours earlier and they set up. They got officers inside in plain clothes, like hanging out with the regulars. They got officers outside and, you know, the white vans. Probably yeah. not the white vans. I don't know what they used back then. <laughs> but they got them posted up outside. But this was before listening devices. True. So the guys inside are having a hard time hearing Dawson and Mulligan talk because ah. it's a loud bar. They can't sit but so close without being so obvious what's going on. So they had worked out this system. This amazing system. So three hours later, Charles finally comes. And so <laughs> one of the agents gets up and goes to the bathroom. Well, that was a secret signal for Dawson to say, hey man, gotta pee, be right back. He goes into the bathroom. So then in the bathroom, they just have a chat about what was going on It's oh. <laughs> Not obvious at all what was going on. Um, but apparently Mulligan didn't pick up on it. So, um... <laughs> That's funny. So, when, as soon as they exit the bar, cause he's like, he wants me to leave with him. They're like, just leave with him. You know, it'll be okay. We've got people outside. And so, you know, he, they're going to go get the car. When they walk out of the bar, they immediately arrest both of them. They had to arrest both because of them. Because it looked like he's on, in on it. Exactly. So, they fake arrest Dawson, but they really arrest Mulligan. Got it. So, now they have him in custody. But he also goes without, you know, he doesn't resist arrest. He doesn't, um, goes without incident, but he also refuses to talk. Gotcha. So he's not saying anything. Okay. But while that's happening, they're going through the car. And so in the car, in the trunk, they find a bunch of tools that were probably used in the crime scene. They find torches, drill bits, bags, coins, um, you know, so then they bag everything up and ship it off to the lab. So then, going through everything else, all the phone records, they find this other number that was called very frequently. It was to a real estate agency. So they get in touch with the real estate agency, who just happened to rent Harry and Ronald Barber a condo a couple of days before the, the heist. Okay. They were supposed to stay for three months. So they signed the lease for three months, but they pieced out after three weeks. Guess what day they moved out? The day after the heist or? March 27th. Okay, yeah. The so Monday that the bank days. found out they were okay, robbed. gotcha. And so... Three days. Dun, dun, dun. So the manager's like, sure, you can search it. But, I mean, 
place was immaculately clean. Really? Could not find one fingerprint anywhere. Wow. On anything. That's crazy. Because how do you stay somewhere and then not leave they wiped anything? They everything down. However, the toilet. they made one mistake. What? The, the thing on the toilet handle? Nope. nope. Even that was wiped down. Oh, wow. Not one fingerprint in the place. But this was a group of men. I'm trying to think. That's why I said toilet, the nope. under the toilet seat. Um, I have, I'm trying to You're think. out of guesses? I'm out of guesses. Tell me when. I'm out. They forgot to do the dishes. They didn't clean the dishes? Or the dishwasher? The dishwasher. <gasps> they opened, in the 70s? They opened the dishwasher and it was full of dirty dishes. I can't believe there was a dishwasher in there. <laughs> In the 70s. Dirty dishes. Dishes that were not wiped down mm. and just happened to contain tons the of fingerprints. D- yes, and DNA. Even tons of latent fingerprints. DNA. So things are bagged and sent off to the lab. And lo and behold, oh, now they Lord. have fingerprints of five of the seven suspects. Whoa. They did not think to do the dishes. Why didn't I think about Proving that? it's the worst hated chore ever because <laughs> I hate the dishes. Because, I mean, they've robbed a bank for three days and hidden Got well. away with it with wiped down everything. Thing, just circumstantial, wiped down everything. And did but not. forgot to do the dishes. Since they had done the dishes. Well, if they had hand washed them, they still were left prints drying them and stuff. Well, not if they wore gloves. That's true. You never run that either. They weren't too smart. So here's were. a tip. Do the dishes. Yes. Wear gloves and do the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> so... And it just so happens that the lab also matches a tool from the trunk of Charles's car to the tool that made the marks on the security deposit boxes when they opened them up at the bank. Oh, wow. And so, and they have him in custody. So that's great. So at least one of them is away. But now they have to find the other six, and they had to do it fast because Word once, once work, once, you know, they see that one's gotten up, the rest of them are going to That's right. Go. Yep. So they had to do about it fast. So we'll talk about that next. All right, so a lot's going on. Yes, definitely. A lot has happened. So Charles Mulligan was arrested coming out of that bar, and so was technically Eric Dawson. Gotcha. But, I mean, Eric Dawson was not arrested. He was helping out. But now he needed to be careful because, I mean, he's the squeaky wheel in all of this mess. Oh, yeah. He, and a, so... As these shows say, he grasped some people up. Yep. <laughs> so it started, you know, he got... He was receiving threats. And, like, eventually a hit was put out on him. Oh, my goodness. And so he knew about it. Like, he's concerned, so he's letting the agents know, like, guys, like, I'm worried. And so... But if he hadn't let them store the car there and use his house, he would have gotten in trouble for that, too. Exactly. what do you do? So the agents were like, all right, set a meeting up with these hitmen. Because they were, like, calling them, and they were threatening them. So he's like, hey, come meet me at this bar. And you think they wouldn't go because they what happened to Charles Mulligan. But they go. Yeah. So he has this meeting with the hitman. So two, two of them show up. And as soon as they get there, they're, like, trying to buy them hard shots of liquor. Like, trying to get them drunk. And he's like, hey, I gotta go to the bathroom. That secret signal. So he goes <laughs> to the bathroom. And then an agent gets up and follows him straight to the bathroom. And he's like, they want me to leave. They want me to leave with them. Because they told him, and this is true for if anything ever, do not go to a second location. Yeah. He was safe in that first location. He had agents on the inside and agents on the outside. If he ever got into a car with those guys, that was it. Like, yeah. he's on his own. Like, they're going to do what they were paid, to, you know, paid to do. And so he was scared. He's like, because they want me to leave. They want me to leave. And they're like, well, stay put. Don't come out of the bathroom. Just, yeah. just stay right here. So they go out to the hit guys. And basically they're like, you know, they're at a public place. They let them know that, um, you know, we know what you're here for. Like, we know why you're here. 
you need to back it up and go on somewhere. Yeah. And so they kind of throw their weight around as the FBI agents and the hitmen were kindly escorted out the premises to the airport where they got on a plane and got out of California. Oh, okay. So was he ever bothered again after that? Well, he was placed under witness protection. Oh, okay. So he was under that special program where his name got changed and he got somewhere put somewhere else. Oh, poor guy. That is always so, so sad to me. I can't imagine just having to be uprooted and be like, yeah. you're never ever allowed to talk to anybody in your life again. Yes, that's terrible. Of course, I don't know, there's sometimes some people in <laughs> I might be like, okay, <laughs> make sure it's somewhere tropical. <laughs> like the one, that story we did that time. Yeah. Um, oh, no, because they got murdered. Oh, no. Oh, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were in where? Where were they at? Anyway, if you hadn't heard that episode, that's the one way back. We had fun. You should listen to us. Yes. If this is your first go around. But anyway, so... They're like, you know, peace be gone, go on with yourself, we know what you're here to do, go away. Put Dawson under witness protection, so he's safe somewhere. Okay. And then they begin searching all the last known addresses of all these other team members, because they got to round them up. Okay. And they got to do it quickly. Right. So that word one, is getting out. Yep. So one of the houses, they find a woman's purse, okay. and so they open it up, because they're looking for men, but they open it up, and they find a crisp $20 bill, and the serial number on the bill just so happens to match... From the list of the cash that was stolen from the bank. So, bingo. Awesome. Dun, 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 dun. Yay. So, then an anonymous tip comes in. I don't know who. It's an, again, anonymous. We don't know where it came from. A tip comes in that says that this gang has a habit of burying cash until it can be safely laundered. Okay. So, now they have to start looking for... Buried cash. Buried cash. And then where would you bury cash? How would they know where it's buried? Right. So, somehow, on all their cross-referencing research, somewhere, somebody at a desk was super busy, they find a patch of land, this is about 20 acres of land, so this is not a small area, okay. that is across, or adjacent to a land that's owned by James Decenio. Okay. Or, Denzio. Den- I think I'm saying that Let wrong, me look and I it. apologize. Yes, we apologize it's, it's to the colonel. It's late, and I'm in the dark. It looks like Denzio. 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 James Denzio. Anyway, so they're days and days. They're out there digging with shovels. Eventually, they get a bulldozer. They're digging. They're digging. And, like, they're trying to see if there's anything to this tip. So, they, they've they been digging for an entire week. Looks like they could have seen fresh ground or something. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. New growth. Don't know. But after a while, they finally come up with pay dirt. Awesome. Pay so, dirt. Yeah. <laughs> they pull up several trunks. I mean, foot lockers. Wow. That are filled to the brim with just straight up cash. This is like millions of dollars worth of cash. Wow. In the dirt. And of course, all the serial numbers, the cash directly traces back to the bank. Then another tip comes in. So a neighbor of Emil's calls in and he's like, I found this cooler buried in my yard. And I open it up and it's like full of money. Wow. So they go check that out. So there's over $100,000 in that cooler. Oh my gracious. And then serial numbers match. Stolen cash. But this time they find a meal, um... Denzio's fingerprints on the cooler. So now they're like, okay. So now they now start. We can put them together. Now they start popping up and start trying to round people up. So now arrests start being made. Of course, they try. So the very first visit they make is Ronald and Harry's home. But all they find is their mom. Their mom's like, they disappeared. I don't know where they're at. Like, don't look at me. I don't know what they're up to. So she doesn't know where they are. Okay. You think so, she doesn't or she just... I mean, I don't know. Who knows? Three months of investigating. They have evidence of the seven members, but only Charles is the one in custody. 
Six are still at large. So then they start rounding them. So Emil was arrested in his home near Youngstown, Ohio. He wasn't even on the run. And in fact, when they arrested him, he had $500 in his pocket that were linked <laughs> to the stolen cash at the bank. He wasn't sweating it. So he's like, whatever. James Denzio was arrested at the airport. His carry-on, full of cash. Oh my gracious. Philip Christopher was next in his apartment where he had $32,000 in his closet. Again, all cash. <laughs> all traced back to the stolen money. And then two months later, Charles Brockles is arrested, which was what I assume he had some cash on him. It didn't say, but I mean, I imagine. So despite all this evidence, including the cash in his, in his pocket and fingerprints on the cooler, Emil, James, Philip all say they're innocent. All oh, say they're innocent. Oh, my goodness. I have nothing to do with it. My fingerprints are everywhere, but I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> Somebody gave it to me. <sighs> and I only had a quarter to keep it in when they shared. Why? Cooler. So, okay. So, Charles Brockle was arrested last. Okay. He's also the one that didn't have any money attached, I'm assuming. He didn't have any with him? Well, it, it wasn't listed. I was joking a while ago when I said uh, probably so. Okay. But because out of all of them... He gets offered the deal of a lifetime. To turn on them? He gets offered that if he cooperates and lays it all out so the feds can put everyone away, all of his charges get dropped. And he gets put under witness protection. Oh my goodness. And of course, why wouldn't you agree to that? Yeah. So he agrees. I mean, that's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. I get nothing. I'm not even in trouble when I got to like rob the bank. (laughs) And I get to go away where no one knows who I am? Sure. Why not? Well, he was smart not to keep the money on him. Like, the other ones had too much money. I mean, they, and they even had money in their pocket. They were, like, now. about it. So, the Barber brothers are still the ones that are left to capture. Like, everyone else gets rounded up and shipped back to um, California. And they all get charged. And they all get sentences and this, that, and the other. But Emil, who's the mastermind... He brags to his inmate. Never brag to an I swear some of these inmates are put yeah. there on purpose. <laughs> like, they're going to tell on you. Like, yes. especially if you give them good dirt, they're going to tell on well, you. Well, they're not honest. I exactly. Mean, so. so, Emil brags about this heist to this inmate. So, the inmate agrees to let Emil buy an alibi. And so, the inmate, of course, contacts police. And he snitches. And the agents were like, okay, well, offer him that, you know, you'll put him in contact with a guy and he can, you can buy his alibi or whatever. So they, he gives him the contact information so that he meets in a visitation this guy who he's going to buy his alibi from, who just happens to be an undercover agent. Of course. Of course. And so, and they, they plan that he's in Vegas and that he's with some prostitute and then like to get receipts and like, so he comes up with this whole story about where he's at. Of course, all a lie. And they know it's a lie. So then the trials begin. In October 1972, he's so happy that that's his alibi. He's like, yep, that's where I was. I got proof, man. And they're like, ah, he's on a courage. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he had no idea it was a sting operation. Didn't, I mean, that's what they do. Do they even let him do that anymore? Uh, the way our world's I, yeah, getting? yeah, they okay. do. They do. Um, so, of course, everyone receives sentences in a range from like 15 to 20 years. Of course, Ronald and Harry are still on the lam. But then a tip comes in that the brothers are living together in Rochester, New York. Of course, so they knock on the door and Ronald answers and then they're like, ha, snatching you up. <laughs> so, but then he refuses to give up his brother. So, I mean, like, even after all that, they never turn on anybody wow. except for Charles. Of okay. course, he took yeah. that sweet deal and they're yes. like, peace out. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so he's like, don't know where my brother is. 
So eight years Harry manages to be on the lam. But in 1980, a woman from Pennsylvania, she calls the police and she's like, Hey, I think my friend is living with this guy who like said something about robbing a bank. They're like, well, what's his name? Harry Barber. <gasps> so he's promptly grabbed up and he gets 20 years. Oh, wow. So finally, the largest bank heist in U.S. history can be closed. Everyone is behind bars. Eric Dawson is in witness protection, along with Charles Brockles. Wow. Crazy. Yes. And there's a, there's a crazier part. Okay. And I can't, I haven't done some digging, but apparently Emil, the mastermind. The mastermind, okay. The wrote, one with the alibi that he bought? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. He wrote a book. He wrote a book? He wrote a book. Okay. And I went to the website, and he is claiming that the feds, like, framed him for this. Something about his fingerprints were taken off of a battery in his garage from a children's toy, and they've placed the thing. But again, he, according to this, he had money in his pocket. Yes, that tied him to the bank. Exactly. And he tried to get an alibi. And exactly. Was all, yeah, no. But so anyway, on his website, there's a contact button. So okay. I emailed him. Oh. And I asked him about some things and that I have found in the story. And I'm curious to see if he emails yes, me back. Yes, Melissa. So, I kind of want to read the book. Because I read some comments from people who said they were, you never know on the internet. Um, you can't <laughs> trust everything you read. But I'm curious. This is the first time ever I've contacted somebody go, directly. Is he still in prison, him. did you say? I don't think so. He's okay. out now. They only got 15, 20 years. Oh, God, got it, got it. Yeah. Um, so, he's old now. But he's yeah. out. But I'm curious. He has a daughter named Melissa. Oh, wow. I should have. And I was like, hey, this is Melissa. <laughs> Not your daughter. Um, but I'm just curious. So if he happens to answer back, and, I will do an update. Yeah. And then the other ones have never said anything about being framed or anything, right? So, no. But yeah. then, but he claims he has documents from DOJ to support this. He has a book. And I've heard, it's got good reviews. I'm kind of tempted to read the book. Read the book. Yeah. Because they said it has a whole lot. Because he does, he is proud of the fact that he is a very skilled burglar. He's <laughs> the one on his website who like, let me explain the difference. Oh, what so I do is skill. Yes. Oh, okay. And he wanted to clarify. So I thought that was interesting because I do love a good heist. So yeah. I'm curious to see if he responds. Yeah. So if he does, I will let everybody know. Sounds good. But so that was our story about the bank heist. Yes. I, kind of make. I thought that was pretty From the car. I think From that's the good. car in the parking lot. Nobody robbed us while we're sitting yep. here. We're still safe. And nope. so, this is a little bit different this week, but we appreciate you listening. Yeah, thank As you. always. And Melissa will follow up if she reads the book and yes. gets an email back. I'm kind of curious. I kind of want to have a conversation. Like, how do you think you are framed if XYZ? And everybody Could else Could they got... really take one fingerprint from a battery that they raided from your garage and, and put it on a very cold yeah, in your neighbor's yard? $50,000 in his pocket? 500 or whatever. Oh, yeah. it's $500? Yeah, $500, but the serial numbers match the... Yeah. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you answer for that? Very interesting. I asked. I asked that question, yes. so we'll see if he answers. Right, please answer if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, find us a podcast yeah. about it. I would love to... Um, so I apologize if I was saying your name wrong. Emil. Oh, he may not. I yeah. know. He might be like, no, I'm not going <laughs> to talk to her. Um, oh. But yeah, so follow us on Facebook, and you can email us, oldtimecrimegals at gmail.com, and just remember... If you do the crime, it's going to catch up with you in time. And we'll talk about it. Until next time.